There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite video games. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm kind of surprised to find out that they brought Ghost Rider back again, and this time it's a horror comic. Uh, I mean, there's like four different versions of Ghost Rider running around. Are you yeah, talking about the new, the, the new Robbie Reyes one? No, uh, it, it's Johnny Blaze is yeah. the most recent one that I found. I didn't yeah. know if Robbie Reyes had one or not. Robbie, yeah, there, there's two concurrent uh, Ghost Riders right now. Well, I knew Robbie Reyes was Ghost Rider in the Avengers, but I meant the Ghost Rider comic is Johnny Blaze. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't mind that, whatever. If you want to have Johnny Blaze as the, the guy, that's fine. doesn't have to be, you know, Danny Catch or whatever. But, or Reyes, Reyes would have worked for him. But, but my thing about it is, it's just weird to me that they made a horror comic at a Ghost Rider. Not that you couldn't do that, but you can't do... A lot of modern horror is based on building up anticipation. It's that, you know, the slow burn approach. If there is a character less suited to a slow burn approach, it's the guy whose head is on fire all the time. I mean, to be fair, they did the same thing with the Immortal Hulk, but that's not okay. why people are here. A, a, Immortal Hulk has a much better writer. Um, it does. But the slow and, burn, the Hulk is generally not associated with slow burn. Yeah, but he, he did it, but he did it with other people. <laughs> the Hulk wasn't dependent on it. The Hulk was still basically just the Hulk. And I realize this isn't what we talk about, but I mean, we yeah. totally could folks. If you want us to do like as answer comic book lore questions, you can, we will definitely answer that. <laughs> do you want to finish your thought before I, I give the, uh, the solicitation for questions? No, no, I think I'm, I, <laughs> I don't have a lot more to talk about on the subject. I just think it's interesting. So on that topic, if you do have questions for this podcast or any of our podcasts, if you want us to cover a specific video game or uh, anything that's heavily story uh, related or, 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 you know, lore heavy, this could be comic books. This could be books. Um, send them in to us. You can go ahead and send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. 
Uh, let us know what you want us to talk about. As a matter of fact, we've gotten several emails and contacts about Warhammer stuff, which I'm very happy about. Just as, almost as happy as Matt gets when you send us Diablo questions. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can go ahead and send those in to our Discord channel, uh, which is Patreon Q and Podcast Questions. If you're not a Patreon supporter and you don't want to do the email thing, uh, and instead you want to go ahead and do uh, the Discord thing, we do have a Q and Podcast Questions channel. You can go ahead and throw them in there. Just specify what show it's for, and we'll take it from there. Otherwise, Matt and I are just going to fight over it, and uh, it'll be interesting. So... Uh, but without further ado, we're going to start with our very first question. And this one comes from The Starhammer. Was there any lore behind Lands and Beach on the south end of Tanaris? The beach is filled with level 50 turtles, and they bite. I actually forgot this existed until you sent this in. Matt, do you remember if there's anything on there? I think that was like, wasn't it where like the uh, Bilgewater it's goblins? Yes. There's a group of pirates down there in the bilge waters and stuff. Yeah, there. When you're doing the quests in Tenaris after the Cataclysm once, you get sent down there by both the the gnome and the goblin that that are in. Uh, oh, I can never remember the name. Gadget Zan. There's a, a gnome and a goblin in Gadget Zan. They're both working to try and expose the pirates, but at the same time, they're kind of antithetical to each other because one's obviously a member of a goblin cartel, and the other is a gnome representing gnomish interests. Uh, I don't know if there's any lore to why this place exists, aside from uh, Tenaris is now much more water in it than it used to. A lot of the the uh, eastern side of Tenaris flooded uh, when the the, mount, the rocky side of it got caved in during the Cataclysm. So there's a huge inlet, a bay that didn't used to be there. Um, but it asked to whether or not there's a specific story about Landshead Beach. I don't know of one, but that doesn't mean there isn't one. I don't know everything. The only thing I remember from it uh, is I remember that there was, yeah, there's a bunch of, of turtles. There's also like uh, dune, dune short crabs or whatever they're called over there. I do remember that there used to be a rare spawn over there. It was a goblin, uh, like Franky, Frankie, something like that. Um, and it, I guess it was supposed to be a place where the Bilgewater goblins crashed when they were heading to Gadgetzan. Uh, but they didn't realize that they had made it that close and apparently didn't have the means to make rafts or send word. So they just kind of went slowly nuts uh, due to isolation and will attack literally both factions. So but yeah, there's, there was, um, I can't remember his name, the troll, uh, Rexar's friend. Uh, oh yeah. Rexar and Zakar and Zakan went there, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, this was, uh, I think it was in one of the books. Um, I know that they went there and they found a bunch of crazy goblins who think they're cut off from the world. They think they're in like some lost island and they don't know they're on Tenaris and they're just trying to kill everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, but again, I don't, I don't know. Like you didn't used to even be able to go there. Um, like I, I remember in game, you couldn't get there without swimming all the way down. Uh, you, there was no other land based way to get there. Uh, but the cataclysm, they created a passage. Uh, you didn't used to be there, but I don't know why. I don't think there's any other like lore or story involved with it. Yeah, it's one of those things where it just exists. Like, uh, and this is we've been asked about it a couple times, but I think that's really all there is to it. So I apologize. Like, we could go. There's been some a lot of other like mysterious islands that have existed. This one just is kind of there. Uh, maybe they'll do something with it later. Maybe they won't. Who knows? Uh, we're going to go on to our next question, though, here. Uh, 
Hello, Lore Watch. I am by no means a lore master, but I, I probably know more than a typical WoW player. With the last expansion, expanding the lore in the Scourge, and the next certain to expand on the dragons, a question has popped in my head. The Scourge were a threat to life on Azeroth, but I'm struggling to find lore on what the dragons did about them. I know the red dragons helped with the Wrathgate, but it seems the dragons were largely on the defense. They were under assault from the undead, and the undead dragons were raised from their corpses. Do you think the dragons didn't have the numbers to fight the Scourge and waited for the mortals to bolster their ranks? Uh, and uh, that is from, I'm just going to use your first name because you didn't provide one in the email. Uh, that is from Ryan. I, besides being under assault, what were the dragons doing during that time frame? Well, I mean, the problem they had was the dragons were fighting Malagos. Uh, if you remember the, the Wrath of the Lich King storyline, one half was the Scourge and what they were up to, but the other was definitely how Malagos was pulling all the ley lines across the world and especially across Northrend to, um, I can't remember the name of that place that he, Kaldara, to the Nexus in Kaldara. And that's mo- mainly what most of the dragon's time was spent doing. There's a quest, I know there's well, a quest in Dragon Blight where you go to the black dragon shrine and on behest of a black dragon to stop Arthas from turning them into ember worms. And there's other quests like the one you just mentioned, but it definitely felt like the dragons were like, we'd love to focus on this, but we have Malagos literally, you know, trying, he's sending dragons at Wormrest temple. He's, you know, we, we kind of have to deal with that first. So that was their attention was mostly on that up until Alexstrasza finally gets you to, to go in there and stop Malagos once and for all. And after that, um, honestly, I don't recall if the dragons took any more direct apart, but like, I don't think they did. I think, I think the question here though, isn't during wrath. Cause we, we kind of know what they were doing during wrath. We were working with them. Uh, and we have the stories about that. I think before wrath is the question because there's this big period of time and it's not really addressed what the dragons were doing. Um, I guess we could probably make the assumption that the red flight was probably recovering from their time being dominated from the horde. Um, because prior to Arthas and the, the, the scourge 1.0, I guess I'll call it not wrath Arthas's scourge, but when he was succumbing to it originally, um, there really isn't talk about what the dragons were doing during that time frame that I can really remember, but I would think that at least the well, red dragon oh, flight well, was recovering. Right. Well, and you just pointed out the book night of the dragon, you know, the book day of the dragon basically takes place, uh, between Warcrafts two and three. Mm-hmm. Um, in Warcraft three, there is no sign of what the dragons are doing. I don't think they show up like m- at all. I don't recall any real major or even minor appearances of, of any of the dragon flights during Warcraft three. Uh, I'm not sure why, um, you could argue part of the reason is that, you know, they didn't know anything about it because Arthas killed Saffron, who would have been the one to warn them. Oh, Hey, these scourge things are coming after our, our, you know, magic and our treasures and so forth. Saffron didn't have anybody to warn in the first place because at that point, uh, Malagos was still cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I, and that's to remember before the, before Malagos turns on the Dragonflight, he's insane. He's like, he's muttering, he's ranting, he's mourning the, the total near total destruction of his flight. He's useless. He's off the board. Um, you mentioned Alex Straz already. Ysera was asleep. Like Ysera was straight up asleep. She was not awake. Uh, Aranicus, well, she was, was already, trapped. she was already fighting like the early vestiges of the nightmare at that point, wasn't she? 
I don't know if that's the case or not. I mean, maybe, but we know that she was not on the board and Aranicus was getting into trouble. Like we, we find out in world of Warcraft that Aranicus is trapped inside the sunken temple. So her consort wasn't there either. So her, her flight's totally leaderless. Um, blue flight's gone. Red flight's occupied. Black flight's evil and probably took, you know, took the opportunity to do things like, you know, get Nefarian and Anixia into positions of power. Uh, we don't know what Deathwing was doing with this time. I think he was, well, we know, we know vaguely what he was doing with this time, but we don't know specifically if he was ever like, oh, hey, there's undead things are a problem. We should take care of those. I don't think he saw it as his issue. And the uh, bronze flight doesn't come out unless they really have to. Like we saw, if you go back and look at the War of the Scepter, the War of the Shifting Sands, the uh, Karaji didn't just have to be driving everybody out of Silithus. They didn't have to just cross Ungoro and get around the the Titan stuff. They then had to actually attack the Caverns of Time before the Bronzes would come out. Until then, they were like not interested. Well, they're also kind of tunnel visioning on their role, yeah, right? Like they absolutely. were they were focusing on what they were supposed to do and nothing else. But if you look at all that, what you basically have here is nobody's going to make the first move. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexstrasza certainly would like to, but as you pointed out, yeah, yeah, her her flight was in tatters. Um, Malagos is is flat out barely holding on to his sanity, and he just got. Keep in mind too, what happened in Day of the Dragon was they all just got the rest of their power back for the first time in thousands of years. They'd all been going on about half strength for thousands of years. After the, the dragon soul got made. And it wasn't until Ronan cut the thing with Deathwing's scythe, I mean, uh, scale, that their power was released to them. Yep. So for thousands and thousands of years, they were going on half strength. Now suddenly, boom, surge of power. Um, they, so they all had to deal with that. Malagos, it certainly wouldn't have helped any. Um, Ysera, again, unconscious. Don't know if she was dealing with the, night, the, with the uh, nightmare or not, but she certainly wasn't out and about. Aranicus was gone, so he, her chosen leader for their people when she wasn't there wasn't doing his job because he was stuck in Sunken Temple. And technically, um, technically during Warcraft 3, too, and this is something that I, I'm just now thinking about, if you were to take the encounters in the storyline when you're playing through the Scourge, uh, storyline because there is a scourge storyline and the frozen throne and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're doing that, one of the things that you're doing when you summon frostworms is you are literally sending cultists to find burial places of dragons to resurrect them as frostworms. That is mm-hmm. what you're doing. That's uh, how Saffron got made into yep. what he was. That's Arthas did that. Uh, Cindergosa. So it, it's interesting. Well, Cindergosa was later, but. In terms of what we're talking about, basically what it's seen with the most plausible, although certainly not necessarily the case option, is that they simply had not heard about them yet. And keep in mind that it may seem like, but they were rampaging for four years by the time World of Warcraft came along. Four years four is nothing years to a is, dragon. Yeah, four years. Okay. Oh, you say Saffron's dead. Well, I wasn't aware he was still alive. Like, you know, it's not like they're keeping much contact. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think they were necessarily waiting for us they were just being dragons doing their own stuff and when confronted with the scourge certainly reacting to it like that's not what they want to see nobody wants to see a whole bunch of walking corpses in the ruby dragon shrine but oh yeah and for certain like i would think that the two dragon flights had they been not one gone to the dark side and the other one completely diminished from years of being held in captivity uh, you know, the reds and, and the black dragons would probably have reacted very quickly 
to the unnatural disturbance of the scourge rampaging across the world. But again, at this point, the black dragon flight is decimated and gone. Um, what's left is fallen to the, the sway of old gods or is an outland at this point. Rathian hasn't been born yet. Uh, so none of that exists. Um, and yeah, and Abyssian, technically Abyssian was alive, but he was on the broken shore mm-hmm. dealing with the high mountain and not really looking past them. And not, well, not even that, but afraid to leave the high mountain because he knew what was out there waiting for him. He knew the, 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 the madness that consumed his father. So like there's, he can't, he can't do anything about it. Like he's still, like you said, he's dealing with the high mountain, but like also if he leaves that, that safety of that, that, the, those mountains, that range, then Nazoth can reach out to him. Nazoth can sort of get into his brain like he can all the black dragons and except for, well, I shouldn't even say except because he definitely hit Rathion. Um, but with very rare exception, the black dragon flight is or at least was susceptible to it. Uh, so, yeah, they, they couldn't deal with anything. Uh, Alex Raza was was busy recovering and trying to figure out what was going on, uh, what what was happening with her own flight that had been devastated because she had been in captivity being forced to, uh, I mean, trigger warning uh, for folks with, with uh, this particular breeding. topic, but it was forced breeding um, for the, the horde to have their dragon riders, uh, which is also in the Warcraft games, by the way, the Warcraft two and three, a um, little bit more in two than, than three was just more, more or less mentioned and they were treated as neutral spawners, but yeah, like, they had their own stuff to deal with. And then there's also the economy of scale for time for them. Like Matt pointed out, dragons don't think like mortals. They're fascinated by mortals. And we start with dragon flight comes closer. Uh, and we'll hopefully be able to talk about this in the future, uh, near future a little bit more. It's, you can see that they didn't quite understand mortals. They had a vague idea. They created cities or, or structures sort of in the, the vague, image that that mortals would but it didn't have any of the accoutrement or anything like that it wasn't it it was almost like you ever see those old movies where uh there's like the western shootout and there's like a street with all these buildings but if you zoom out from that shot and you actually take a look at the soundstage the buildings are just fronts they're actually hollow there's nothing inside of them it's almost kind of like that feeling where it's like stage dressing um, not saying that that's completely what it is, but you get a you get a feeling of that with them. So also they're like, oh, the humans are maybe they heard about it. Maybe the humans are are messing with magics that they shouldn't have. They know warlocks exist. They know magic exists. They know that the mortal races were harnessing magic. They've encountered it. They've witnessed it. Um, you know, maybe they're doing stuff that they shouldn't, and they're getting their hand bit because they they mess with forces above uh, beyond their control. Okay, well maybe it's not much of a concern. Besides, I got other things to worry about, you know, and that's that's a thing. And then until like Matt, Matt said, they comes beating down their door uh, or forcing them to act. Yeah, they're not. They're probably just not going to pay attention to it. So they it's not that they weren't willing to deal with it. It's just that they had other things that were higher on their priority list for what dragons are. So. All right. But I'm going to move on to the next one, which also comes from a dear friend of ours, Tetsemi. 
I don't remember hearing about a one for Shadowlands, but is there an object in game you can click on and see the video that plays after defeating raid bosses, like the statue in Dalaran? If there isn't, do you think there should be? Uh, they should bring this feature back and maybe expand it a bit with some audio voiceover pictures to explain the story thus far uh, for the players who don't raid. Since somebody is referring to, uh, I believe it was Wrath that did it the first time, right? There was the statue in the middle of Dalaran uh, that you could click on and it would replay the cinematic for the fall of the, the Lich King. And this mm-hmm. way, if you weren't able to raid, if you couldn't get into a raid and see it yourself, if your realm, if anybody on the realm had done it, you could go ahead and watch it. Um, I think they did that a couple other times too. I think they did it. Did they do that in Pandaria? I can't remember. They did one for, uh, yeah, they did one in Cataclysm for Deathwing. Uh, That's right. I know you can, you can go click on a big fragment of him in both Org and Stormwind and, it plays the last bit where, you know, they, they, they blow him up for good. I don't remember if there's one for uh miss Pandaria to be honest with you. Um, I, I never bothered to go watch it. So I wouldn't know. I didn't, I didn't go looking for one. I haven't really been paying attention to look for them since. So I don't know if there are any others. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but it is something that I actually, it's not that I don't like them. I think they're an interesting touch. But I also think it's something where the fact that we have to say we don't know if it exists tells you all you need to know about the efficiency of it, right? Like, if a player doesn't know it exists, how are they going to know to go click on it? There's nothing in-game that tells you to go, hey, by the way, uh, X baddie is is been defeated. We've erected a monument in the honor of the heroes that have, you know, defeated this villain. You know, why don't you go take a look at it? There's nothing that directs you to go do that. Uh, and yeah, like the, the one in the one in Dollar, and you absolutely did get a quest to go look at. Yeah, and it's also I impossible think the same to thing miss too Catacly- because it's, it's right when it's right out the portal room. Yeah, but I think there was also one for Cataclysm. Like there was also a quest saying, "Hey, you know, we we put up a, m- a memorial to to Deathwing's fall and so or something like that." So yeah, I don't think there's anyone that might be. If so, they should publicize it more. But instead, I would think, and and this is more of a broader uh, interpretation of the question. So apologies or not apologies, depending on how you feel about it. I still come back to this idea that I really like the, I the, this concept of maybe leveraging lore walkers in the world. The lore walkers are this interesting, just, I didn't want to call them a faction. They're, they're this interesting body of, of, of individuals who travel, potentially travel uh, and gather stories and record sort of the history of, of major events and maybe not even major events, just, just the tradition and history of in the particular case, the Pandarans uh, and as a result, everything that happened on Pandaria, but there's nothing that says now that the myths are gone and the Pandarans have sort of integrated with both factions that there wouldn't potentially be lore walkers that travel the world. We actually know uh, that uh, there were ones that traveled before. I cannot uh, Chen Stormstout. And uh, Lily travel. They were around. They've experienced stuff. Why couldn't there be other ones? And maybe you encounter them and you tell they tell you the story of these major events that happen. And they do it instead of just playing through a cutscene, which don't get me wrong. The cutscenes are absolutely phenomenal. And the cinematic team does a, a, a wonderful, wonderful retelling. But what if they did something in game? What if they did something that was similar to how the lore walkers present story or how the uh Arden Weald, the uh theater there actually like recreate some of your major story events from being at those key events from your memory. Do something that feels a little more interactive and you got you got 
what I would be looking for. And I'm going to shut up now so Matt can talk. Okay. Um, I, like, I like pie. <laughs> like, well, if- no, I mean, I got an answer for it. Let me, let me put it this way. I don't, I, I don't dislike the feature. I don't think it's bad to have a, a way for people to get to see uh, raid fights and lore bits that they didn't get to see. Um, obviously you're not going to get to see the fight, like as in like playing it, but getting to see like the major cinematics, because I mean, I understand if Blizzard has decided it's not necessarily worth their time because I mean, the second they put a cinematic in the game, somebody data mines it out and puts it all over YouTube anyway. Yeah. And I can imagine feeling discouraged if you're like, yeah, okay. It's not like anyone's like, people are not going to even finish this fight before they've already seen this cinematic. Like that's what happened with the jailer. Um, people had seen that cinematic. Like people were asking me questions about it. And I was like, I haven't seen it yet. Like, you know, and, and if I hadn't seen it yet, it wasn't like a good chance that anybody else had, but you're already asking me questions. It's like, I don't even think the servers were up yet. So there's that, that's kind of a problem. And I'm not sure, like, if you are working on the game, I'm not sure if you can do anything about that. That's just the nature of the player base nowadays. But so I don't mind them having it in game. I think it's, you know, I, I liked the one. I really liked the Deathwing ones because they were fairly convenient. They were just right there in Stormwind and Orgrimmar. Mm-hmm. The Orgrimmar one was a little harder to find because it was up and over to the like, way over and that like, like everything in Orgrimmar. Yeah. Well, no, the, it was in that that, that place that was just kind of like put there for Cataclysm. Um, which was not really the one in Stormwind is right next to the castle. Like you could see it from the palace. So it was pretty easy to get to the one in Orgrimmar was in no place you'd ever heard of, you know, not, not near anything. It was kind of off the troll place, but nobody went to the troll place. Uh, it's not like the troll place was even a place trolls went. Um, so I don't really know exactly what the answer here would be. I think one thing that would be better than constantly putting in like new monuments or so forth if you wanted to use Joe's lore walker idea or even the time walkers or whatever, or maybe combine them into like one group. Uh, I don't know. Like we like lore. We like going, looking back at the past. That's lore, I guess. Okay, sure. Can you want to look through a time window? Yes. We would like to look through a time window. Um, but like, imagine just having like, you know, lore master Cho just show up uh, in Orgrimmar and be like, did you guys hear about this amazing thing? And just tell you about the raid fight or even like, I kind of miss those guys being in the raids. I know that didn't make any sense, but it was fun when Lord Walker Cho would just show up and be like, this is amazing. Like, imagine if he keeps doing it and you're like, Cho, how did you even get here? We're, we're on. Oh, Polis. I found this. I found this secret, <laughs> the secret portal that put me right in here. Like, yeah. <laughs> like exactly. Like just, and, and no matter what we do, like we go to the dragon Isles, we get to the dragon Isles, Lord Walker show. It's already there. You're like, what the hell? The dragons just, Oh, it's amazing. This dragon turtle brought me here. Uh, and just keep going with it. Like every raid, every time a new raid comes out, Lord Walker show is already there trying, you know, dying to tell you about the secret. And maybe he even like work him into some of the quests. Like he gets kidnapped and dragged into castle Nathria and you have to get him out again. Like, like really make it a part of the game. And there are, therefore when, when at the end of the raid, if you know, the guy gets killed on the server and everybody wants to see the fight, it makes sense that shows the one who tells everybody, because that's literally what he does. Mm-hmm. He goes to, he goes to these things, watches them and then comes out and tells everyone about it. So yeah, that that's, that's one idea I have off the top of my head. Another would just be, um, no, I, th- I think I'm going to stop there. I, I, the other idea I have is is still kind of percolating, and I want to think more about it. So yeah, I'm going to say 
yeah, just just let Cho, Lore Walker Cho tell everyone about it, or even have like this Lore Walker Cho, and I forget the name of that Torin Xanator. What was that his name? I the, don't remember the weird immortal to- Torin that you met in in uh, Wrath of the Lich King. You know the one I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that was in the Time Walkers. Have the two of them like be the Starsky and Hutch of explaining raid fights to people after they've happened. I I, I could I could be into that. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of ways you can do it. I, me personally, it's one of those things where I just want to see more interactive or more. I, I hate to see, use the word immersive, um, but something other than just the cinematic, especially because the cinematics get pushed, like Matt said, so so early and so prevalent everywhere. I'd like something that is contained specifically only in game, um, and that's a big ask. I understand that is, uh, but yeah, if we're shooting for the 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 moon, that's what I would go. All right. Uh, anything to add to that before we move on to the next one? I don't believe so. And I found the right button to push after a couple of seconds of looking at my keyboard and going, oh, God, which one's the <laughs> It's been that kind of week, folks. All right. This one is actually a D&D question from Gavlin. Uh, part of D&D's appeal is its established lore and multiverse. Fifth edition has provided source material for portions of this overall setting and hinted at even more. Can you provide something of a summary of the fifth edition D&D multiverse and its primary conflicts? The answer to this question is yes and no. I'm going straight up with no. Because, okay, there, there are, we can only talk about things that have already come out. Well, no, not just that. But, um, like, there's nothing. They've, they've said stuff about the multiverse that imply that it is every possible thing that could ever happen. Yes. It's every D&D setting you've ever heard of. It's, it, to a certain degree, it is so massive and so full of we don't know what that explaining it to you is practically impossible. Um, if it exists in any D and D setting book, it could possibly be in in what they're going to do. Um, they've been bringing out stuff from like years ago. Um, Witchlight had stuff from the D and D cartoon in it. Uh, it had stuff from the toy line, which didn't even appear Ra- in the cartoon. Radiant Citadel's creating all new stuff, uh, yep. specifically not just Radiant Citadel. The whole thing about uh. The the um, Ravenloft book mm-hmm. with the domains of dread. They then put out Witchlight, and now in Witchlight, there's the domains of of delight, which are brand new. No one's ever heard of them before. And now the the other thing to add in is now they're starting to branch off into non traditional D and D settings. Uh, we already have a, a Theros book. We already have Strixhaven. These are places that never traditionally existed in Dungeons and Dragons. They existed in Magic: The Gathering. Uh, same with Ravnica. This didn't exist in D&D before, but these these are now uh, settings that exist. That's part of the the, the lure of, of D&D in general. It's not necessarily that there's there's not an easy way to summarize it because it depends on what you're looking for. If you, you know, want well, to another way to put it is this. Um, the entire vast, complicated cosmology of Magic the Gathering is now a subset of Yes. Of D&D. All that stuff exists as like part of the D&D multiverse. But what part is it? Where is it? The Planewalkers and the and the Magic the Gathering storyline is very specific. And it has this very specific construction behind it. And now you find out that all that stuff exists within D&D, but not necessarily that the that the stuff they view, their cosmological worldview might not be accurate. Or at least mm-hmm. not accurate for all of it, just accurate for their part of it, and that's nuts. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just it is. I, I mean, sitting here trying to tell you all the conflicts. I mean, one of the things that did you, if you read Fizzbins, one of the things they talk about is this first world concept, and the first world was this universal, this multiversal creation, this 
existence where everything was there at once that until the war of the uh, dragon gods essentially was this one unified reality. And as a result of that shattering of that realm, dragons today, when you meet a dragon, that dragon is a multiversal being. Yep. Like it exists. Like you could kill that dragon in your universe and then go to another universe and meet that dragon again. And it would remember that you killed it. Yep. It's like, Hey, I remember you, you were annoying. Um, so yeah, there's, there is a ton of stuff. Yeah. Like real quick, just to throw it out there, like over the, over the years since 1977, there have been like a number of individual settings that are now all interlaced. You have Blackmore, you have Dark Sun, Greyhawk, Mistara, Ravenloft, uh, you have uh, Lankmar, you have Karatur, you have everything that exists inside of Spelljammer, which was originally a way that they tried to to bridge those ones to begin with. Um, you have Hollow World, you have Dark Sun, you have Al-Kadim. Um Diablo 2 technically exists in the uh, the universe uh, of planes that touch each other if you really want to get into it, because at one point, the Diablo 2... Uh, I think it was like, I want to say it was like 1999. They actually released a tabletop book that tied into the greater universe of D and D as a whole. At least uh, two of them, three of them technically, because they, yes, they, they released an AD and D one first. Yep. And then when they switched to third edition, they released two books for it for third edition. And I've got both of them right there on the shelf. So Same I'm here. looking at them. Then you have, um, you have Eberron, you have uh Rogukan, you have the Warcraft universe. Technically, if you want to go back in time, uh, had had mechanisms to attach it to the Forgotten Realms. No joke. It legitimately was in print. How do you bridge Warcraft into Forgotten Realms? The Warcraft RPG book. Um, yeah, no, he's right. Before the before the war, the World of Warcraft RPG, there was the Warcraft RPG that was officially licensed and put out by TS by Wizards of the Coast. Yep. Um, then they they decided to do a different one that was not done by Wizards, but. Yeah, no, there's there's so and, much stuff. And the difference is, is each of those settings has its own primary conflicts. Each of them has its own primary pantheons. Like in Dark Sun, one of the major conflicts is magic versus literally everything else, because magic is what poisoned the world and made it a barren desert. So people tend to not want to deal with it, and wizards are viewed uh, as warlords, because that's really what they are. They, they have a tight grip on everything. But then you switch over to Greyhawk, and it's a lot more like Mount. it's the Silver Mountain versus uh, the the nine layers or seven layers of, of the Inferno, right? Like, there's a lot more of a celestial conflict going on there, and the gods tend to walk the earth, and their, their folks, the, the people that worship them, whether it's monks or clerics, uh, paladins, whatever the case is, and all flavors and all, all uh, alignments are part of that ongoing conflict and war in Greyhawk. And you go to Forgotten Realms, which focuses more on the people and less on like the extra dimensional stuff. So it's Xanathar in uh, you know his his Skullport. Uh, it is the Blackstaff trying to combat that while being in Waterdeep. It's everything that's happening in Neverwinter after there was a major war up there that left the city completely devastated. Uh, it's a lot more about the people and the daily conflicts of life and survival, which is however. Partial- Go ahead. I'm going to say this. Every one of these settings kind of has some bleed through because they are oh, absolutely D&D worlds. Uh, while Joe's saying all this, I'm sitting here thinking, um, Mistara and the Weave, yep. the God War, um, yep. 
the fall of Baal and Bane. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of God stuff in the Forgotten Realms, but it it just it's all of a piece. Basically, the D D multiverse at the at the highest point of it is a metafictional concept that they developed to explain something that they've had for years when that they have all this stuff out. And technically speaking, you can use any of it, even if it doesn't really like there's stuff. Some of the stuff Joe's mentioned isn't even owned by wizards. Yep. And you'll never see a wizard, but it's considered. You'll never see it it again. And they won't mention it. It won't be in any new books, but you can still pick up a copy of it and use it. It doesn't take very much. It's not hard to convert any D and D product, even one from like the 1970s. Like you can, you could grab the original, you know, um, keep on the borderlands. Yep. It'll take you 10 minutes to there's, convert it. There, there's a company out there right now that does exactly that. Uh, old school essentials actually takes the old, uh, basically the old book boxes that you used to get the adventures in and converts them to modern readability, but not just modern readability. It gives you two different forms of it for AD and D for those of you that want to go and play it uh, as you would, or back then with, you know, cleaned up rules that are easier to read, but it also gives you conversions for fifth edition. So you can play keeping the borderlands. You can play all of those with fifth edition because now they're there, but like dark sun hasn't had a release uh, for fifth edition, but it's still considered part of their their backlog, Dragonlance yeah, as well. And that's one of the things also I want to point out is that a lot of this actually comes from the much maligned 4th edition. Yes. Because in 4th edition, they originally, going into 3rd edition and beyond, the cosmology was called the Great Wheel concept. Mm-hmm. And you'd have the material plane, which was where all the physical stuff happened, and then there was all these other planes. And it was in this big wheel, and it's still kind of something I th- I use from time to time just because it's so ingrained. But what 4th edition did was they came up with their 1,000 points of light campaign setting, where it was fairly like you, you were living in a world that did not have overarching massive nations or empires. It had enclaves of civilization surrounded by threats, monsters mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, dra- and all that. But their cosmology was essentially the material plane, and then the orbiting material plane was the Shadowfell and the Feywild. And they've brought that into fifth edition. And in the process of doing that, they had the elemental chaos, which is where the abyss was. That's where all the elementals lived. But then the abyss was like even deeper than that, where originally the, the primordials had reigned. And now the demons were because they'd overthrown their makers, the clip off who themselves had been, you know, just pure chaos. They, and, and there was just all this stuff that they put in to, to, to hold a kind of a lattice or a framework. And it's all kind of been incorporated into fifth edition. And as a result, fifth edition has a much wider net that they can, they can have all this stuff happening and just accept that it's all D and D and not worry too much about it. Now that said, uh, because I feel bad that we cannot really answer your question. I, I think in the spirit that you were asking it, what I would say is if this is something that you're really looking for, primers on you'd have to be a little more specific because the the net that fifth edition casts is so wide now uh that it is virtually impossible to do anything of the sort unless you're getting very very specific so like if you wanted to know like what's going on in the north you could look at rhyme of the frost maiden a lot of that is in there if you want by north he's talking favorun of favorun's north yes favorun is the the quote-unquote default setting yeah, if you uh, get a D if you get a D and D book in fifth edition and it doesn't specify where it is, it's most likely in favor. 
Uh, if it's not like, for instance, Journey to the Radiant Citadel is obviously set in the Radiant Citadel, which uh, in, is not which in, in favor, which, which is in the ethereal plane. Yeah, but um, and like the Theros book is obviously set in Theros and so forth. But if it's just like a D and D book, or like he mentioned, unless it's the Salt Marsh book, which is set in Orth. Uh, the Greyhawk world. Yep. If it's otherwise like the Storm King's, what is the name of that module? Storm King something. Uh, you know the one Storm talking King's about, right? Thunder. Yeah, the Storm King's Thunder. That's set in favor. So right away, maybe that's what we should talk about. Maybe we should talk about the various worlds. How, like, how much time do we have for this? We can keep going, right? I mean, we got we got twenty minutes left in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me try and I'm going to try and set something up, and then Joe can expand off of it with some riffs when he wants to. Basically, here are the worlds you are most likely to hear about. Um, not all of them. These are not all the, the worlds that, that could be in D&D or have been in D&D in the past, but here's a good amount of ones that you're most likely going to hear about. Uh, first up is Faerun, mm-hmm. the world that is uh, the Forgotten Realms setting that's created by Ed Greenwood in the 80s to basically take over as the default D&D setting. It is traded places with the Greyhawk a few times. Right now it is the default setting. Secondly is Oerth or Greyhawk. That's the one that was basically Gary Gygax's campaign world. That was the default throughout most of the 80s. And 3rd um, edition. Until, yeah, and in 3rd edition. And since the 3rd edition, it has sort of, it's left its mark, but it hasn't been the uh, default setting in a, in a while now. Um, after those two, uh, there's the, the ones that I would consider still big, but slightly less central. There's Kryn, the world of Dragonlance, mm-hmm. which is... Dominated by a war between two dragon gods, uh, Tachesis and Paladin, who are now basically confirmed to be Tiamat and Bahamut under other names. Correct, because um, Tiamat, Tiamat and Bahamut are multi, multi-dimensional creatures or beings, yeah. like we talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah, so they, they exist in multiple worlds. But that's the Dragonlance setting, you know, the dragons of Autumn Twilight and all that. Uh, more than we can really go into, but basically there's a war between these two dragon gods and the other gods that that surround and serve them for the, the destiny of this world. Uh, so that's, that's Kryn. Uh, there's Eberron, which is kind of like their steampunkish noir 1920s, but with magic setting. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really good. I like Eberron. I like it a lot too. It, it is one of those settings that it is kind of niche in that it, it, it does, it does really good telling certain yeah. kinds of stories and like war stories and stories about like the continent after the war and what do we do and all that. It was but also it very prominent uh, during fourth edition, actually. Absolutely. It was, they, it got, a, it got a, its own book and again in fourth edition. It is however, a little harder to do standard fantasy with it, although not impossible because it is set up to incorporate it, but there's a, it just kind of has a more like if you've ever seen a noir thriller type thing, it's kind of got that feel or like a, a pulp adventure sort of thing. That's definitely part of Eberron's charm. Um, then there's the one I'm going to let Joe talk about because while we both love it, I know he's, he's done more with it in his life. Athis, the world of dark sun. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dark sun is one of, it's a post-apocalyptic desert world, uh, setting where, uh, magic has poisoned. Everything, uh, has basically caused the world to become a gigantic desert, uh, very much almost like Mad Max style, uh, metal is incredibly rare. Most things are made out of stone or uh, natural reason, like volcanic hi- glass, volcanic glass, hide, anything that they clay. can get on clay. Yep. Uh, and stone work stuff uh, where you are essentially competing for survival. Uh, and as it's not a traditional uh, adventure 
uh, in the the vein of Forgotten Realms or the other uh, Tolkien esque style uh, settings. Here's a way to put it: if if you thought of D and D as kind of like a, a like a like a computer role playing game type thing, uh, Dark Sun is their survival RPG. It's the yes. one with a lot of survival mechanics. It's the one where it was so obsessed with this kind of thing that when you the original version of Dark Sun when it came out, you didn't create a character. You created a web of characters because, because they would it die. was likely, yeah, it was likely they were going to die. So you needed to have and other characters ready to go. The other thing that I really use to sum it up is that it is one of the only games that came out during second edition that had a singular artistic direct uh, artistic directorial style. Uh, there's an artist called Gerald Brom, who some people may know as just Ev as Brom, who is a gothic fantasy artist. Uh, he did, or they did, I, I don't remember what their pronouns are, so I apologize. Um, but they did most of the artwork and art direction for Dark Sun, and it has that very gothic horror fantasy feel to it, um, with very washed out colors and, and, and things like that. Um, but it's all about survival. That is the key conflict. Survival in the face of magic, survival in the case of, in the face of, uh, lack of resources, and survival in the the face of uh, cannibalistic halflings and, and elves, because that's a thing that exists in there as well. Yeah. Um, th- in addition to those, there are others. Joe mentioned Mistara before. Mistara actually is interesting because it is an example not of a campaign setting designed for play use, but one that just happened. Because when when Dungeons and Dragons went from just having Dungeons and Dragons box sets. Uh, when Gary Gygax decided they were going to have advanced Dungeons and Dragons, they didn't want to lose the market of people who were playing the game they already had. Um, a lot of people were playing D&D. Well, not a lot of people, but enough people were playing D&D. They didn't want to alienate those people with new, more complex rules. So they kept making what, what later on would be called the Menser sets or the the BECMI, uh, Basic Expert Companion Master Immortals sets that covered from level one to level 36 and then beyond level 36 into actually becoming like a godlike being. And uh, we don't have enough time for me to explain all this, but the world of the modules and stuff that was these games were set in just by accident, when they made modules or adventures for this game, they, they named places in them and named cities and so forth. And they started getting reoccurring use, like as in the next module would come out and it would mention places from the previous module. Eventually a world took shape just from that. And so they had to sit down and like, okay, if all these different places exist, where are they? They're in this place. And they didn't name that world for 10 years. Like they, and not for lack of trying, they just couldn't come up with one. So they just called it the known world or the D and D known world. And around this, this is at the same time as all those other worlds we've just been talking about were created. They were kind of directly created on purpose, mm-hmm. but Mistara just sort of happened. Like they just fell into being uh, a guy named Frank Menser was the basic editorial guide to why it, it exists at all. And it's got its good sides and its bad sides. I'm a big fan of it, but, at the same time, I understand why it's not really come back into popularity ever since, because it is a strange place that the cosmo, the the rules, conceptions of original box set Dungeons and Dragons were woven into the world. So stuff like only humans can get to level thirty six, or the fact that level thirty six exists, or the fact that 
halflings are all rogues. There's no ma- there's no magic casting halflings or dwarves in the setting. You can thank Tolkien for that one. Yeah, yeah but it, you end up with like this, all these weird things that they had to make work. Um, and so I'm, I'm, but it exists, and it could they they own it. They could put out a new book for it anytime they wanted to. I don't think they will. Just like I I do think Dark Sun will get a book. I do think Dark Sun will come out. It's too well known and mm-hmm. too distinctive to not get something, especially when they're talking about doing more stuff. And especially with Spelljammer coming. Spelljammer coming. Uh, and that's the other thing, too. We didn't talk about Spelljammer. We didn't talk about Planescape, which I don't know if we're going to have Planescape anymore because Sigil was part of a previous planar conception. But clearly, places like Radiant Citadel are drawing upon sigil and there might be sigil inside of the spell jammer space as well we don't yeah, know yet very very possible and it would be it would be a good use for it and for those and um, for those of you that maybe if you're not aware sigil is the city of doors it is a city that exists uh i want to say it was the astral sea no it was uh an aspire directly above what was then called the plane of concordant opposition and then it. later called the outlands yeah, so basically it, the plane of neutrality, because that's another thing under the great wheel cosmology, every plane had an alignment and the neutral plane was concordant opposition. Cause it was the plane where everybody goes. Yeah. So yeah. But I mean, it, it was the, it was where you went and it had a connection to literally everywhere you wanted to go. So if yeah. you wanted to go to Athos for some reason, you could go and find a portal in sigil to go to Athos. Yeah, um, the key, the portal might be any one of a number of things, and the key to open it might also be like it could be like an old feather, or it could be the concept of drought. Like you could have to think really hard at the door about you know dying of thirst, and the door would open. Like there's a reason we can't answer your question. <laughs> like you'll notice we keep going off on tangents here. It's it's just it's the nature of the game in this setting. So. Yeah. Uh, all that to say, like, again, I apologize. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of an idea. Um, and hopefully that didn't make it seem like it was that daunting to, to maybe get started or get some of the primers in it. But I think we're going to move on because we have a couple other questions that I think we have time to get into. Unless, Yeah, ahead. but I just want to say this. This is the kind of stuff that you don't need to know to play D&D at all. At all. Nope. No, you, all you need to play D&D is as simple as... You know, everyone rolls a character and you, you you just stuff them in a tavern if you want. Or, you know, hey, it can be a barn. Or, hey, you're, you're out on the open road and a duck attacks you. Roll for initiative. Or you wake up in a volcano. Uh- yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but my point is just don't be daunted by this. This is all stuff that is there for you if you want it. You don't ever have to have it. You could You could play your own game, never once worry about... Like, you know, what's in other universes doesn't necessarily ever have to apply to you. So we're going to move on to the next one, which is also a D&D question, uh, but I think is also very interesting because of a, an email notification we received not too long ago. Uh, I'm coming out of Dungeon Master Retirement to put together a small campaign for some new blood and a few vets who have managed to goad me into picking up the DM screen again. That said, I really want the setting to be in the Diablo universe, but I'm struggling with choosing a time period. So I ask you both, which would you choose? Feel free to run with the question. And this is from Zariel, the Lightbringer. And yes, that is a very clear D&D reference. I see you, Zariel. I see you. Um, I'm going to let Matt uh, take point on this one because he has stronger opinions about Diablo time periods than I do. Well, I mean... I've thought about doing this. Um, I never did. I always just ended up doing my own stuff, but 
if I were actually going to set a game in the Diablo universe, um, I think I would set it uh, in the period that Diablo Immortal is in. Really? Yeah, and that's because there's a good the, the fact that they put Diablo Immortal where they did is actually pretty smart because it's an established period of time that we don't know anything about. Like we know that from this period, like from the end of Diablo two to the beginning of Diablo three, about 20 years passed. And we don't know much of what was happening. Obviously stuff was getting worse all over the world. Demons were pouring out of the uh, ruins of Mount Ariat. Uh, there was, you know, tumult in Chaldeum uh, because, you know, the, the entire nation um, was was destabilized by the fall of the, of the Zacharum faith. There's Westmarch was having problems. Uh, obviously, Kendaris did not have a king anymore. Uh, its king was dead. Its prime, you know, it, its its heir to the throne had a demon stuck in his forehead, and he was going crazy. Uh, then he turned into Diablo. So yeah, he was out. Um, the they didn't even know about the heir to their throne and she never claimed it or sat on it or even mentioned it. Cause she didn't even know that she was. Um, so a lot of the world was like in a, in a period of tumult, but we know that it would, it, the nations of the place continued on. I don't with Diablo four, not out yet. I'm not sure how I would run a game in the period after Diablo three, especially since with the actions of Malthiel, an untold amount of people died. So many people died that civilization has collapsed across the entire like land. The, the land masses of sanctuary are, f- are full of like, you know, impromptu graveyards. People just dropped in the ground and died and they knew it was angels doing it to them. At least some of them did. So I don't know what that world is going to look like when Diablo four comes along. And I, until Diablo four comes out and I get a chance to actually see the storyline and see the world, especially since it's going to be an open world, I would stay away from that because you don't want to spend a lot of time coming up with your campaign and then have this game come out and completely contradict everything you're doing. You know, now see that's something that's happened to me and I don't like it. <laughs> uh, but the other possibility, and, and if you want to go now, Joe, tell me and I'll just shut up. Yeah, I was going to say, because we only have a few minutes left. I don't want to throw this out there and because I want to get your reaction to it. I would go for the time frame of Birthright when Aldisian was running around. And I was just going to suggest that is my number two. Yeah, that's 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 my number one because it's the the period of that time of where basically the Cathedral of Light and the Triune uh, were in hostility with each other, basically waging a cold war. But it was mostly about the conflicts of of humans at that time figuring out you know daily life. But it's a really cool period because you have that supernatural undertone that's right there that you could tap into. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, overtly demons all the time everywhere, but it could be the church approaches one of the churches, whether it's the Cathedral of Light or the Triune approaches the party. We have a task for you. We need you to go here and do this. And and you start hinting and chipping away at it, especially if you're running with players that that maybe don't understand that time period in Diablo you can start slowly peeling back the layers of demons and angels of Diablo through sort of that lens of these regular adventurers caught up in a war between uh, these two ideologies, essentially. I, I think that would be really, really fascinating because there's so much you can do in it, too, that has this sort of tinge of despair to it, mostly because you already know what's going to happen. 
So it doesn't really matter what they do, but it does at the same time. And I'm going to let Matt talk a little bit about why he, why he would pick that time. But I just like the idea of slowly peeling back the layers as they realize, oh, man, wait, what? We're working for demons? We're what, Great evils? What's going on here? Why is that angel trying to sear my flesh off? <laughs> yeah, like the, the Church of the Triune is very interesting because they they were the it was the three uh primevils. Mm-hmm. Uh it was, you know, Diablo, Mephisto, and Baal, but they were portrayed as spirits of love and and valor and you know creation. They were like literally they they were literally like the antithesis of what they actually are. So there was Dialon, Spirit of Determination, who's obviously Diablo. There was Baal, uh, who was Bala, the spirit of creation. And there was Mephis, uh, who's Mephisto, the spirit of love, which is like exactly the opposite of these guys. So it was really fascinating to, to how the Church of the Triune worked. But the reason I wanted to use them is honestly completely different from what Joe's talking about. The campaign Joe's talking about is very grounded and would certainly be cool. Um, I could actually see it as a Blades in the Dark type game even. Yep. Uh, but the one I'm thinking about is just straight up exalted as the, the Nephilim come back. Like as you know, Odysseus and his brother Mendine, and you know these these powerful, you know, again like exalted, these powerful beings with like who can do things that are like unthinkably like you can go fist fight a god and kill it. Like, well, it's not a god; it's a demon. But yeah, I, I can do that. Like that kind of stuff. By the end of the Sin War, Odysseus is doing stuff like just wiping the past ten years out of history. He just resets the he resets the world stone and and undoes his entire life, including himself. He just he never existed. <laughs> he makes it so he never existed. Except they mention him in Diablo three, but that's all other story. Yeah, but that that's the thing is the people people are having visions of him because he used the world stone to do it. And when the world stone finally got destroyed. It unlocked what he relocks, the thing that Inarius set up in the first place. The thing that was breaking down during the Sin War was the Worldstone locking Sanctuary away from its power. So, and from the power that was inherent to the the various Nephilim. the The thing about the Nephilim is the power that you have as a Nephilim is because you are a like a, a recreation of the power of the primordial Anu. The being that was both good and evil, the being that was everything, that tore itself in half and threw away mm. half of itself. And every Nephilim has both halves of Anu in it. And that's where their terrifying power comes from. The end of Diablo 3, when when Tyriel and Inarius are watching and you kill Malthiel, at the point when you kill him, Malthiel is wielding the powers of all of the evils in addition to his own as a, as a former archangel and you kill him, which means at this point, as Tyrael says, the forces of heaven and hell, he, you know, he's a champion who can defeat the forces of heaven and hell, but within him beats a mortal heart. Like that's the terrifying thing that I would play with, like with creating these characters at that period of time, because it's that, that they're more powerful ultimately than heaven or hell. And all humans have this. Mm-hmm. It's why Malthiel tried to kill us all. It's and it's and it, oddly enough, it's also part of the story of Diablo Immortal because in Diablo Immortal, like the demon in question, Scarn wants to convert everyone on Sanctuary into a demon. He wants to quote unquote purify them, just like Malthiel did. Except Malthiel wants to do it by killing them. Now, there to move away from Diablo just a little bit. This is something that uh, somebody emailed us. We get a lot of solicitation uh, at the site for random Kickstarters and and things like that and there's 
it's hard sometimes to to go through and see what's actually good, but we got a notification about an upcoming game coming out called Hellguard Curse of Cana. Um, if you are an old school tabletop RPG or uh, it's got some pretty decent names behind it. Apparently it was code is it's being co-designed by Ed Greenwood, uh, who is one of the original Forgotten Realms authors, uh, and Gwendolyn Kestrel, Kestrel, who was one of the uh, co-writers for the fourth edition rulebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and did a lot of stuff before that, too. And did a lot of stuff before that, but I'm just I'm just throwing those out there for, like, they know what they're doing. Um, but it's interesting because it's very much inspired by, like, Diablo and Castlevania from what we can see. And we have, I don't have an advanced copy, neither does Matt. Uh, the campaign hasn't even gone live yet. But you're not alone in putting things in like a Diablo or Diablo esque universe. And there might be resources coming out soon that might help you with it. It's just something to kind of keep an eye on uh, in the near future. Just figured I'd throw that out there. Cause I thought it was interesting timing. Yeah, no, it's, it is. I've looked at it enough to be, be interested by it. Um, it definitely has some tropes that borrow from Diablo, but at the same time, the, the Castlevania stuff's there too. Yes. Um, and it's funny because Castlevania and Diablo, you don't think have a lot in common, but they kind of actually do. They're both giant dungeon crawls. They're giant dungeon crawls. There's also that whole, you know, these primordial evil forces are just accepted in in the various game worlds. Like, you know, oh, hey, there's that uh, that castle with Dracula and it came back. Uh, that's not good. Can someone go stop that? Like, really? Just Dracula? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah death is in there, too. Death? Yeah. They're friends. Not sure what's going on with that. Anyway, could somebody get someone really good with a whip? Preferably one in this family, but we'll just take anybody and, with a whip at this point. And that class already exists, by the way, in uh, the core rulebook. There, the urban ranger is basically a Belmont. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> uh, I always feel bad for Jonathan Morris though, because he shows up with the whip and he's like, "I can't use this thing." And they're all <laughs> like, "Yeah, whatever. Go whip. Go whip some undead." But no, really, I'm not. You know. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's going to do it for us today. Unless there's anything else you want to add. Uh, there is, but I don't have time. Like we, we, <laughs> we, would, we do have to stop. So, yeah. But again, if you have questions for any of our podcasts, be sure to send them in. Uh, you can send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify what show it's for. If you want us to talk about lore on lore, watch about the story or settings for basically anything. Uh, if we know about it, we will talk about it. And if I don't know about it, I will go find a guest. I am absolutely a okay doing that. Um, send them into there, or you can send them in our, one of our various discord servers, uh, as a few reminders, we do want to thank all of our supporters, uh, because without you, this wouldn't be possible because it is made possible due to your generous contributions, uh, at patreon.com slash blizzard watch. Your continued support means this podcast setting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ads free site experience. Uh, there is, if uh, we are starting to experiment with other tiers of rewards for Patreon as well. Uh, so you may want to pay attention to there. Um, I don't want to announce anything concrete, but keep an eye on there and keep an eye on our discord servers as we will be notifying you when new things become available as rewards for those of you that continue to support us. Uh, and then one last reminder, all of us at blizzard watch continue to stand with the employees of Activision blizzard as well as the game industry at large as they work to not only unionize, uh, but just make sure that everybody is safe and has equity and, and, and quality uh, and, you know, doesn't hate going to work in the morning. Those are, I hear those are good things. So, uh, but with that folks, we'll see you next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.